Hi guys, I'm Jo Croft. You are listening to the Puppy Coach Podcast. Join me as I share my top tips, thoughts and experiences from my career as a vet nurse and canine behaviour specialist, helping owners form a strong, safe relationship with their dog. Welcome everybody. Thanks for joining us on this podcast today. We have got the amazing Rachel Leather with us today, um, who is an animal behaviour clinician who specialises in psychological trauma. Her first degree was in psychology and she completed a master's degree in animal behaviour in 2006. She then went on to run a degree programme in applied animal behaviour, teaching students clinical animal behaviour and setting up a behaviour clinic so that those students could also gain practical experience, which she continues to run today. Rachel has also worked with children and adults who've experienced trauma for over 12 years, offering therapeutic support services for children and adults who were survivors of human trafficking and child sexual exploitation. Knowledge she applies in her clinical work with dogs today. She also delivers trauma-focused training to vet practices, rescues and other organisations, and very exciting, she has a book on psychological trauma coming out later this year, which I can't wait to read for sure. So that's a pretty amazing bio, Rachel. You've done a hell of a lot, and I, for one, am very, very keen to start unpicking all this and seeing how your journey evolved. I can't believe you were involved in the human trafficking and and child sexual exploitation stuff. I mean, that's just so diverse in comparison to what you're doing now. Do you want to kind of just start with giving us and and our listeners a bit of an intro into how that all developed, really? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me, first of all. Very welcome. Um, Yeah, it's lovely to chat to you. So I started off with, I did my behaviour masters and I was running the the degree programme After a few years, I felt as though I wanted to go on and study some more. So I did that. And then I just felt, I guess, like a lot of people, I I just didn't quite feel satisfied. And I felt like I wanted to be doing more. So I started volunteering with a local youth offending team. Right. And absolutely loved that. And then I realized I wanted to do it for a living. So I worked in I got a job in um as a therapeutic residential support worker so working with children and young people who were in care right and that's when I first kind of came across children who had survived child sexual exploitation or were at risk of child sexual exploitation okay that became my main area of focus it's a very it's a very niche area and yeah. so I was because I had a little bit of experience on in my next job, I was kind of pulled in to focus more on on those cases. So I supported the young people who had been sexually exploited or were at risk of sexual exploitation. OK, that then led me on to becoming a key worker in a safe house for victims of human trafficking. Wow. And then I. I just progressed from there, really. So I managed the safe house for women. And then I got the post of service delivery manager for that same charity. So an amazing charity called Unseen, who do just incredible work supporting survivors of human trafficking. So I became service delivery manager, which meant that I had responsibility for all of their frontline services. So Okay. The safe house for women, safe house for men. Um, I developed the safe house for children, which was the UK's first um, trafficking specific children's home right. and an outreach service. So, yeah. And then I then I moved to South Wales <laughs> and I was very lucky that they kept me on in a post as researcher because obviously I, I couldn't run the services remotely so I switched to a research post monitoring the outcomes of the children's home and yeah eventually just as I moved here I fell madly in love with the dog behavior stuff again and just gradually kind of picked up more and more and more clinical work and then I was seeing I think like everybody I was seeing a a huge increase in cases of puppy farm dogs rescues from abroad um and and really kind of significantly challenging cases yeah and I I tried to research and look around and and understand 
how I could better support these dogs and realized actually there's very little information out there and and a lot of what I had learned about trauma running the support services for victims of human trafficking we have to be very mindful of trauma and yeah we operate in in human psychology we call it a trauma-informed environment yeah so I was luckily able to adapt a lot of what I knew about trauma in people to trauma in animals and actually a lot of what we know about trauma in humans comes from animal models so there is a direct relevance there for sure so um yeah that's it in a nutshell (laughs) okay so so tell us what that looks like Rachel obviously from my perspective um you know we know that there are similarities between the human and the dog brain but there are also huge differences between the two which obviously we take into consideration when we set behavior modification programs but from your perspective when we're specifically looking at the trauma brain and we know we know that there's a physical aspect to that you know what are the kind of key components that you really look at that you can kind of see parallels in humans and dogs it'd be really nice to kind of explore that um you know where you are able to um kind of uh, give us an idea on how you would conduct some sort of management and what the similarities are yeah absolutely so the there's been some uh, the research is very limited although there has been some amazing research so dr frank mcmillan has done a lot of work with animal uh, dogs specifically sorry from commercial breeding properties so what we would call puppy farms here yeah uh, hoarding situations and victims of abuse so a lot of the researchers come from that there's been some interesting work in japan on dogs who have survived earthquakes and been abandoned and researchers there noted that they appeared to show signs of long-lasting distress that again they described as similar to PTSD so so there is some research that suggests there's a a canine equivalent of PTSD now that's not obviously saying that dogs experience trauma in the same way as humans do yeah it's just that there are parallels and when we look at the when we look at the diagnostic criteria so the DSM five the diagnostics statistics manual five i want to say that's the that's the diagnostic tool right for human ptsd when we look at those criteria canine ptsd is based on those criteria the only one that we can't really be sure of that is a huge component of ptsd in humans is the re-experiencing so we don't know to what extent animals spontaneously re-experience trauma i.e nightmares flashbacks or whether they dissociate that kind of thing yeah other criteria it's very clear that they do meet it so for example hypervigilance yeah an extreme uh, non-graded fear response a fear response that becomes pathological so it goes beyond the adaptive fear response that all animals have and and becomes problematic yeah Um, and then we can see things like mania or catatonia so the the shutdown unresponsive to stimuli around the dog the dorsal vagal in terms of polyvagal theory um Stephen Porges um, talks about three distinct autonomic states and the dorsal vagal state is very much the shutdown one so unresponsive to things around you not finding pleasure in things that you previously enjoyed um social withdrawal loss of positive emotions so really a profound change in all aspects of the animal's emotional life really yeah. So would, you know, dogs in this state, you'd expect to see them in this state on, on a sustained level. So, you know, thinking that your average owner in the home that's maybe seeing snippets of this in their dog, their dog necessarily isn't, you know, suffering um, from some big trauma. But certainly, I guess what you're, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but what you're kind of referring to is those dogs that are in that sustained, you know, delivering those sustained behaviours for for long periods of time or are unable to come out of them. Is that right? Or would you see dogs that have suffered severe trauma um, 
to their brain on a, a kind of emotional level, you would see them kind of dipping in and out of this behavior or even dipping in and out of the behavior when they get a trigger. So do you get both or one or the other? All of the above. Okay. All right. <laughs> yeah, well, that's that's a really, that's a really interesting point because we think PTSD is not something that, that we consider curable, if you like. So there's always going to be peaks and troughs. And what we aim for with long-term recovery is that we can build resilience, but it's very likely that when exposed to the trauma-related cues, so any trigger that reminds the animal of the original trauma, it's very, or when the animal is under stress generally, they're going to be a lot more vulnerable to those signs reappearing. Yeah. If it's helpful, I can run through a list of the kind of signs and symptoms that we might see day to day. So again, a lot of them are non-specific. So it's about looking at the overall picture of the animal. How much time are they spending in this state? What triggers it? So it's it's quite a it's not a straightforward diagnostic process. But some of the signs that we would expect to see would be things like freezing. Yeah. Um, so, so the typical kind of rabbit in the headlight, frozen, mm-hmm. or more of a shutdown pose. So I call it the Eeyore pose. You know where <laughs> Eeyore the donkey off winning yeah. two, and, and he's just really kind of um, slumped and and not reacting to anything particularly going on around them. Pacing and signs of extreme fear. So pacing, trembling, yeah. uh, salivating, uh, hypervigilance. So being constantly on the lookout for danger. And that speaks a lot to the to the changes that happen within, within the brain that I can talk about a bit more. Um, yeah. Being shut down, being off their food. So you might notice weight loss, for example. Uh, anhedonia, which is the the loss of pleasurable experiences, so emotions that the animal previously felt, or we can infer that they previously felt, like joy, excitement, those kind of things. Yeah. Uh, hiding away, having an extreme avoidance response, so panicking, running away, hiding, mm-hmm. trying to escape. Um, social withdrawal so being isolated and not wanting to engage either with other dogs or or with people um and then there's physical some physical signs which are the result of chronic activation of the stress response so um we might see itchy skin so a dog who scratches a lot or licks themselves changes in the coat quality or texture um chronic diarrhea Sleep is another one. Again, we don't have a huge amount of research on disturbed sleep in animals, but it's certainly a huge part of PTSD disorder in humans. Sure. So, so I guess we kind of want to rewind a little bit because there will obviously be people, professional people listening to this, but there will also hopefully be, you know, dog owners, which I'm aware we, you know, the point of this really was to delve a little bit more scientific. So, um, and I think that's really important that people understand the other side to the dog is not just what the dog is expressing in front of you on an emotional platform, but what's going on underneath. So I think this is really great. But if I said to a client, I think your dog has experienced some sort of traumatic experience, I think that would be really shocking because, and what I mean by that is it's obviously the dog's perception, isn't it? So you could have a puppy that, you know, was actually not socially exposed to anything. And then suddenly the first time it meets a human, it's picked up off the floor and given to a human it finds particularly challenging. You know, it's all relative. So kind of what I'd like really to hear from you, Rachel, is how you decipher general day-to-day kind of in the moment fear response. And then what what then transmits into what we would class as a trauma because not all traumas occur because the animal's been abused or neglected. Yeah, absolutely. So the important thing about trauma, there's no such thing as a traumatic event. So the reason for that is every single individual exposed to an event will react differently. And there are some people and some dogs who are extremely resilient And there are others who will go on to develop either PTSD or some other pathology. 
So, so there's two things there for me. The, the individual's perception of the event is the important thing. If they experience it as traumatic, then they're traumatised. Yeah. And that depends on a variety of risk factors. So genetics, life experience, um, all sorts of things, in utero stress. There's a whole host of, of factors that kind of contribute to either risk or resilience. Yeah. And those will those will determine how an animal perceives the event. If they perceive it as traumatic, again, the important thing is the individual. So not all dogs who experience an event as traumatic will go on to develop PTSD. And that's a that's a really important thing. A dog can experience trauma without meeting the diagnostic criteria for canine PTSD. Frank McMillan describes post-traumatic responses as being on a continuum. And I think that's a really great way of explaining it. So at the one end, you've got the adaptive fear response. So some animals will experience that individual event and they will have a normal fear response. And yep. that means that they will take appropriate action to avoid the scary thing in the future but that fear response will gradually reduce over time and they'll recover and return to, in inverted commas, normality. Whereas other dogs will develop pathological fear responses, so ones that aren't normal, so they persist longer than we would expect, they're more intense than we might expect, they don't recover as quickly as we might expect, so that's an abnormal, if you like, fear response. Yeah, But then there's a whole host of things in between that normal fear response and canine PTSD. So the animal who has experienced trauma doesn't necessarily develop canine PTSD. They could show individual phobias or they could show depression, generalised anxiety, obsessive compulsive type behaviours. So there's a there's a whole host of potential outcomes after trauma. It's not limited only to PTSD. Yeah, and I think I think that's really important because I think on the ground, on a day to day basis, we see as behaviourists certainly and, and, and even dog trainers going in um, to help these owners, we're seeing those extreme behaviours mostly in isolated situations. So you know, particularly what I would want to pick up on there is the OCD scenario now. Um, you know, we'll get into drug therapy and stuff, but I know for sure that OCD is is an area that I would be exploring with the vet to decide, you know, I would probably need some form of internal support for the dog on a pharmaceutical level because I know how challenging those cases are. And that, that does upset me because usually these things happen as a byproduct of the animal's lifestyle or completely out of the owner's control. But the OCD scenario is the most frustrating thing for me. And I have sorted out many cases without the help of drug therapy and managed to break those patterns successfully. But there are dogs that it's just so ingrained that you just can't. You know, I guess yeah. from your experience with, with treating those dogs, are you looking at more, well, where was the original trauma? Let's treat the original trauma. Or are you looking at let's try and manage control the OCD type behavior? Like where Where do you come in at? Yeah, again, it's not a very clear cut picture because OCD can happen for a variety of reasons and trauma is only a tiny percentage of those. Right. So a dog can show compulsive behaviours without ever having experienced trauma. So that's why it's so important in a behaviour consultation to really dive deeply into the history yeah. and unpick what is driving this behaviour? So I don't know if you've heard of a guy called Andy Hale. He's absolutely amazing. And he's he's doing a huge amount to raise awareness of the fact that we sometimes need to look beyond just operant conditioning. So yeah. the, the four quadrant. Sorry, that's a bit techy, isn't it? So, <laughs> it's quite uh, techy, but it's all good. It's all good. So this it's is all what learning. It's, about. it's to do with learning theory. So, so how animals learn and we can increase the likelihood of a behaviour or decrease the likelihood of, of a behaviour using operant conditioning, so either reinforcement or punishment. And actually, especially with trauma, but actually I would argue generally, 
we need to look much beyond the behavior yeah sure we can change the behavior using those processes but we need to really understand the emotion that's driving them and i think the the critical thing for carers of dogs is to know that again i just want to re-emphasize if a dog experiences an event as traumatic then it's traumatic yeah we we have language and we're able to rationalize so our perception of the risk of a situation may well be very different and part of the diagnosis of ptsd is that you're exposed to an event that is felt to be life-threatening and actually yeah. us as humans with language and our ability to see things rationally we may make a decision that that animal was not in any real danger but if they felt that they were in danger or even that their life was under threat a really kind of typical example that I'm sure we've all come across is foreign rescue who's been living on a street for example yeah and they get captured with a catch pole um, and taken to a kill shelter our perception of that as humans might be it's for the greater good I'm taking mm -hmm. you off the streets and I'm putting you in a rescue and you're going to be adopted and you're going to have a great life yeah. Therefore, that is not traumatic. <laughs> yeah. But actually, from the animal's point of view, it's extremely, it, they have no way of understanding that being captured in that way is not a life threat. So I think we really need to try and understand things from the animal's point of view. Just to give you a slightly funny example, um, my own dog, Rhea, when she was a puppy, we were doing some kind of search games and she disturbed the wasp's nest. Oh no. And oh it was horrendous. Oh, no. <laughs> we both we both got stung loads of times. Oh. And and she's got a really, really thick coat. So she probably didn't she probably only got stung once or twice and actually I checked her over very carefully and she didn't seem to, to have anything. But my distress, I was stung kind of 14 times oh my god Rachel that's horrendous I've, I've had yeah. the odd one and that's bad enough yeah. I can't imagine yeah, what it, 14 was like it was pretty bad and of course my reaction made Raya really distressed yeah she bolted home and yeah. then she wouldn't come near me for a couple of hours yeah and she recovered from that she's resilient but even now three years later she finds heightened emotion in me very difficult yeah and she'll do lots of appeasing behaviors and and if she's seeing that i'm still stressed she'll withdraw and and take herself away and even though i know a single wasp thing is not the end of the world in her view yeah. i strongly suspect her her perception of it is when i get cross i have the power to invoke wasps and she doesn't want to be around for that so, so. <laughs> Love that. it's also worth pointing out I guess at this point that that's a really great example of how dogs learn in that you know associating way they associate behaviors with events on a such a, an obvious level to us yeah, so. and that's the that's the key thing about the fear response and trauma is that once is enough yeah and, and it's the most powerful form of learning in the sense that it's what we call single event learning so one repetition yeah. is all that's needed to lay down neural pathways yeah. that stick with the dog potentially forever well i'm going to jump in now because i want you to explain neural pathways this kind of conversation is something you just don't have with clients on a general level understanding the physical aspect of how the brain develops and how and when those neural pathways come together I think is really important for people to again view the dog from the inside not just out. So I guess that I should give a huge disclaimer which is that I am definitely not a neuroscientist. <laughs> it's fine this is just a chat you will have lots of knowledge on it I'm sure <laughs> you probably do a better job of it than me. <laughs> <laughs> so so neural pathways essentially are the way information is transmitted within the brain so just as a really simple example when we perceive a trigger so for example some a stranger walking towards you the first thing to detect that is your eye and then 
that sends a message to a different part of the brain. Um, for example, the amygdala, and the amygdala is the bit of the brain that, um, in very simple terms, is kind of constantly scanning for danger. So it, it's kind of a, um, I think Deb Dana uses the wonderful analogy of it being a smoke detector. Right. So, so constantly on the lookout for danger, and if that detects danger, then it will send a uh, the signal onwards, and that generates an emotional response, and then that sends a different uh, the message on to another part of the brain that generates the motor response, so movement and what the behavioural output is. So, so in very I apologise, neuroscientists, <laughs> in hideously simplistic terms that signal travels around the brain in that way and and it's what turns the perception of something into an appropriate action yeah and when we learn those pathways get strengthened or they get weaker yeah so part of the reason socialization period is so important is that it's a sensitive period in the dog's development so the brain is developing very rapidly, those pathways are being laid down and that acts as a template really for the whole of the rest of the dog's life. Yeah. So sensitive periods, just to explain that terminology, the, a sensitive period is a window of opportunity. It's not a critical period. So a critical period would be, we have a limited amount of time to learn a skill and if we don't learn a skill by that cutoff point, we never will. Yes. So just to give you an example of that, cats, if you put a patch over one of their eyes, I think it's for the first three weeks of their life, don't quote me on that, and then you take the patch away, the kitten will never be able to see out of that eye. Oh, wow. They've missed, yeah, they've, they've missed done that experiment of vain. <laughs> yeah, they, they really have. And it, oh. and it was worse than I've described it, actually. Let's oh, just say God. they didn't use a patch. But it, that was a very long time ago. And obviously, ethically, you can't do that now. Come on a yeah. huge amount, thankfully. But that's just an example of a critical period. So if the optical nerve in the cat doesn't develop properly within that first three weeks of life, it's never going to. So that that opportunity has been missed. Yeah. A sensitive period is slightly different. So it doesn't mean that a, an animal will never be able to acquire that skill. It's just that it's a bit more difficult. Mm -hmm. So that's why the socialization period in dogs is so important is because it's that window of opportunity between roughly three and 12 weeks where puppies are their default response is curiosity playfulness because they're puppies they find life exciting and so things that they're exposed to properly and I do stress properly because I think a lot of people misunderstand the socialization period yeah, I agree. to expose the puppy to everything full stop and actually that can be really damaging we still yeah. need to do it in a gentle and gradual way so if we expose them carefully during that window of opportunity then that acts as a template for the rest of the dog's life. And that's one of the things that's very difficult to unpick about, particularly dogs that come from abroad, for example, we don't know their history. Mm -hmm. And it's very difficult to decipher, have they experienced trauma or yeah. have they just not experienced anything? For me, the socialization period is about the important things for the dog to learn are the the things that it's going to need to know about later in life. So if a dog whose socialization period is spent on the streets, learning about how to live on the streets from mum and from other dogs within their social group, they're gonna be very well adapted to living that kind of life as adults. They're not gonna be at all adapted no. to living within the four walls of a home yeah, and having yeah and living with no dogs and being expected to live with people and being confined on a lead when you do meet dogs all that that dog has had no preparation so of course they can become extremely fearful and it's very difficult to know whether that's the result of a lack of experience of the kind of life the dog is living now during the socialization period or whether they've experienced trauma to a certain extent 
it probably doesn't matter that much in the sense that if the dog is very fearful then we need to look at the dog in front of us and make an appropriate treatment plan for that dog but the thing with I guess the thing with trauma is that it can affect how the dog learns memory all sorts of areas of functioning so the prognosis may be slightly different than if the dog was not socialized but then on the other hand there are there's research that shows if dogs are not socialized during that window of opportunity they may never be completely comfortable around people either yeah so again the the prognosis for both of those categories probably needs to be cautious and we need to be realistic about that yeah and then you add in the as we were talking about earlier the the fact that we don't know how the dog has perceived trauma in the first place so even if we knew that there may be a potential trauma there we don't know if the dog has actually viewed it as such I guess this is great because that people can understand why I'm already stressed about getting a brand new puppy like the more you know the more stressed yeah. you become about this stuff. And I think Absolutely. I'm going to have my puppy jumping through hoops by the time it's 12 weeks old, just to be sure <laughs> is yeah. we've covered absolutely everything. I just wanted to revisit the brain stuff you were talking about regarding, um, this is a bit kind of off the wall, but I read a book by Ruby Wax. I don't know if you've read her book where she talks about her struggles with depression. Um, oh, no. But if anybody wanted a kind of real real life reality whistle stop tour on depression how how it is how you know that part of the brain can massively affect a human being she really delves deep into her amygdala she tells you when her amygdala is playing up when it's doing what it should be and when it's not and she talks about her hippocampus and it gives you this real kind of visual perspective on on how you know the brain works and and obviously dogs have those components to their brain as well they may act slightly differently with emotion but um just as an aside that's actually a really good book to kind of hear a a person a little bit of science in there but a person's understanding of how her condition is affecting her when those elements of the brain go wrong i i just wanted to pick up on something you said actually about that pressure that we feel with puppies yeah and i just I I just want to chat about that a bit more if that's okay. It's Absolutely. A bit, it's a little bit off topic, but I think with one of the difficulties with trauma is A, the amount of shame or embarrassment that people feel and B, the pressure that they feel from other people yeah. to, to do something and fix it. And actually, very often, that's at odds with what the dog needs. Anyway, that wasn't my point at all. Sorry. My point was, because of that shame and embarrassment, people, it can be really upsetting to have a dog who has experienced trauma. And I guess I just want to reassure people, the thing I hear most often is, I should have done something differently. I feel as though I've let them down or I did something wrong when they were young. But sometimes it's I've had the puppy from eight weeks old. I don't understand what's gone wrong. Yeah, that's that's common. Yeah. Yeah, really common. And I really want to reassure people because going back to my example of Rhea and the wasps, you know, when I first had my colleagues 20 years ago now, it was before I trained as a behaviorist. So I bought a book and I read what I thought was great information about how to deal with behavior. And I I read that when a dog is naughty, you should scruff them because that's what mum would do naturally. So that's what I did with my collie. And very quickly, I noticed he was kind of flinching away from me. And one day he was attacked by this great big bull mastiff. And it nearly killed him. And as he was crawling back, I mean, it was horrendous. He was crawling back towards me. Mm. And as I went to scoop him up in my arms, he flinched away from me. And it broke my heart. Anyway, that's what got me started on this journey. And when I lost my colleagues a few years ago now, I like to think that I made amends for that start in life that he had. But uh, who knows? It's still definitely haunts me to this day but with Rhea I was absolutely determined right I'm going to get this right and she's (laughs) never going to be afraid of me and then Waspgate happened (laughs) it's out of your control (laughs) yeah and it's completely beyond my control and she is afraid of me in certain situations because 
she's learned that when I express high emotions, yes. there's a potential risk. And again, you know, that breaks my heart, but it is beyond my control. Yeah. And life happens and we can't always protect our dogs from everything. So I guess I just want to, yeah, I just wanted to really say that to make sure people understand that it's not their fault. I do some work with dogs who are survivors from the dog meat trade and they are rescued from Korea. Yeah. And again, I mean, very often they're as fearful as, and traumatized as you would expect from dogs who have lived in those kind of conditions but others arrive over and are extremely confident and resilient and it's very difficult to imagine a worse start in life than living on a dog meat farm right (laughs) so it just goes to show these things very often are totally out of our control. You can have a super confident, resilient dog, or you can have a dog who's really prone to fear, anxiety, and stress. And my worst saying is it's never the dog, it's always the owner, because mm-hmm. that just isn't true. No, so, and, and that's, yeah. that's failure as well for me. I'm gonna, you know, I don't know about you with working with clients, but I massively respect my clients, the fact that they've come to me in the first place uh, for help, for starters. But secondly, they are my tool to success. I'm not there 24 hours a day. If, if I, if they don't feel great about what they're doing, then that's not going to happen. And you know, just revisiting your point, actually, because everybody that, that kind of will follow this will know Puppy Coach, they'll know Hogan and, you know, he's just the most amazing dog. I put two years of solid hard work into him, but people may have seen the odd post I've posted about him. He has a massive fear of bikes in my house. He's fine if we're out, but the tires being pumped up, the psh noise. And yeah. obviously because they learn by association, we don't have to hear the psh noise now. And I've tried everything, Rachel, literally everything to try and break this down. You know, now we're at the point where he walks out of the room and I calmly take him out of the room and, you know, he trusts me implicitly. So I take him upstairs to my room and I settle him on my bed. So he's as far away from from that as possible because that's where the shaking stops and he's comfortable. And, you know, as a behavior issue, you feel like a failure and I have thought I've cracked it like I've had a couple of times where you know I've done the distraction stuff we've done let's let's do some training around what's going on let's let's remove him from the scenario and stop exposing him so that he's at a distance find his distance threshold and it just doesn't matter the bikes outside of the house are amazing the bike in the garden or in our kitchen anywhere near his space but there's obviously been some sort of association associated behavior that I've missed and he's obviously been fearful at some point and I hands up you know I've hit a brick wall with it so now we just let I just let him go I take him I go with him and I endorse the fact it's okay for him to sit somewhere else that's what I do that gives him the trust that's in me. It. and I think that's a beautiful thing we need to listen to what dogs are telling us and again going back to Andrew Hale he's my actual hero look him up if you don't I will do definitely I'm so glad this is recorded I can pick up all these people that you fire at (laughs) me that go in one ear and out the other usually while I'm listening to everything else I actually have now to go and re-listen to he is just amazing and he talks a lot about the dog's truth and I think it's a beautiful way of saying it and you're very much honoring your dog's truth sometimes the best thing we can do knowing that our dog is fearful of situations is to help them get to a place of safety yeah we can't always change it I think sometimes we underestimate or or we don't give enough value to the management and control side of things and by that I mean management and control of triggers preventing exposure full stop or at least minimizing exposure is one of the most important things that we can do particularly when it comes to trauma the foundations of recovery from trauma when we deliver trauma-informed services in human support services the three pillars of trauma-informed care are safety connection and coping so safety refers to the dog's own feeling of safety so again we need to honor their truth and give them choices where do they feel safe it's not about us saying you're safe in the utility room for example it's about honoring where they choose to go to feel 
safe. Safety is the big one. Connection just refers to that level of trust. And again, you're reinforcing that by saying it's okay for you to avoid this. I'm going to let you avoid it and I'm going to help you avoid it. That's really powerful. Yeah. Uh, one of the things in, so one of the key bits of research in child psychology is the biggest factor in recovery from trauma is a safe and loving relationship. Yeah. So regardless of the therapeutic input, which may be an hour a week, <laughs> yeah, of whichever whichever therapy the child can access, the single most important thing is that safe and trusting relationship. And I think we can get a lot better at capitalising on the relationship between us and our dogs to treat trauma we can get a lot better at providing safety. Yeah. And then the other one is coping. So helping a dog to manage their emotions. Co-regulation. Again, it's it it's not necessarily all about fixing the problem. Think about how you'd feel, right? If you experienced a traumatic event and somebody was constantly saying to you, right, we need to fix this, we need to fix it. Every day I'm gonna do a little bit of work on it it would be exhausting horrendous yeah absolutely and we just very often part of recovery is just the ability to be and be relaxed and feel safe that's a huge part of recovery not constantly trying to treat it treatment is important of course yeah but but we mustn't forget about the other 90 percent where the dog is not actively engaged in a therapeutic session does that make sense yeah absolutely and I think it's it's great because we we just recorded a podcast with I don't know if you know Barbara Sykes she's um written several books she's border collie expert and grown up with them and um you know she actually echoes exactly what you said just from a very involved perspective like she's not done the trauma stuff but she acts in exactly the same way so we I had this conversation with her about dogs that you know, lose it essentially you border collies that step out of the front door and attack cars and, and goodness knows what else because their prey drive their chase drive is off the scale and and she was very clear about the fact you need to stop exposing the dog to this and that's just her on the ground experience working with these dogs you know it's that it comes back to the same thing all the time it's actually logic common sense you can get very bogged down with the science and actually we need to be thinking about this program and that program and how we attack these things and how's this person going to treat it and what piece of training equipment is being used but you know my big thing really is is communication and how I practice now is not how I practiced 20 years ago it just isn't I'm very different with dogs now much much more respectful I have much more time and thought into actually watching what they're telling me rather than I've learned this and I'm going to do this when I see these one modes of training being used and the only mode of training and then after that the dog is kind of written off it's very much a jigsaw yeah. puzzle and it's, it's great to hear that actually everybody I speak to and have, have invited on the podcast is is coming from a similar mindset getting this information out there to people that just one arm of you know you've got a problem let's fix it with this this product or this activity it's it's much more involved than that it's much more complex than that your dog is chatting to you all of the time and people really need to start listening because I just don't think they are right now. And um, I just want to yeah. revisit the the trauma thing with regards to what will be relevant for people right now. And certainly I don't know about you, but as a result of the pandemic, I am inundated. The two things that I'm seeing all the time, a resource guardian and separation, what is being classed as separation anxiety, whether that be the dog has just never learned solitary time, as you know, they need to learn that, or whether that be the dog is massively overbonded on an emotional platform to a very stressed owner. Obviously, unpicking that is quite important. So um, I think, I don't know about you, Rachel, but what I'm finding is nothing really fits with what I knew before. So my timelines for helping these dogs out um, prior to the pandemic was actually relatively, uh, not necessarily short, but, you know, considering what I'd be dealing with, it, it was actually relatively straightforward. I could keep my owners engaged for long enough. Whereas now I just feel, and you may say different, but I just feel the dog's have missed that learning criteria um, that they would have had people coming in and out of the house as puppies in a really organic way. They didn't get that. And now the dogs that I'm seeing, so I've got these dogs that have never been left and are not used to people coming in and out of the home. 
And I'm kind of thinking that's fine. We've, we've got, hey, I've done these cases, millions of them before, no problem at all. But it's not the same. It really isn't the same. I've got habitual barkers. Um, I've got dogs that are self-harming, that have got OCD behaviours that are destroying the house. And they're hard because the owners are obviously at a stage in their lives where they're going back to work now. And they're becoming very intolerant. And I don't have time on my side, you know, and it's it's getting to the point where with some of them, I'm actually thinking, I don't know. And I'm honest with my clients. I don't know if I can make enough of a difference with your patient's timeline. You know, are you at the end of your tether with this? Are you finding the same? Um, and if so, what's your kind of experience with what you're getting right now? Yeah, so I almost exclusively see trauma type cases so whether that ends up being trauma or dogs that um just haven't experienced life yeah you know like we talked about that that can be really difficult to unpick but so most of the vast majority of my caseload is made up of extremely fearful dogs yeah okay um so for me uh, i'm probably not as in tune if you like with what's going on as a result of the pandemic because I don't see those kind of day-to-day okay. separation anxiety or those type of cases anymore however you've made a really important point that is r- extremely relevant which is the timeline hmm. for the kind of cases I deal with is definitely measured in months if not years rather than weeks yeah so a huge part of that is engaging owners and and keeping owners engaged and that's a that's a real challenge Mm. and a lot of a lot of the work I do is as much around supporting the owner as it is around supporting the dog for sure because there is that tension with these with these dogs who have experienced trauma again I don't want to generalize but but very often for example, in the beginning, they will be very frightened of people. And so that's at odds with the reasons why we get a dog in the first place. Absolutely. We want cuddles. We want affection. We want love. We want to be able to go for walks. And all of those things are a very long way off for dogs who are extremely frightened of people who have never lived in a house. Uh, who are terrified of the great big world outside. I never underestimate how difficult it is or how amazing these owners are, really, who give Mm. up their lives very selflessly for a dog who, at least in the beginning, gives very little in return. The joy of it is, though, when you do get those tiny breakthroughs, they feel incredible. (laughs) So celebrating those little bits of success and really bringing the owner along for that ride is really important because yeah we measure success in baby steps rather than strides forward really with absolutely and that you know that's why and I think you you do the same when you take on a a case it's kind of this is what I charge this is the support you get I don't ever do that I come back for six weeks for this period of time and you know, that's it. You know, this is me until we reach a resolution, whatever that resolution looks like, you can't guarantee. That's up to you to decide where you go moving forwards. But it is even now, every day I go out to work and see cases, I'm realizing the impact of last year on our dogs has been actually horrific. And not just from the perspective of how they've been managed, which hasn't been the owner's fault. I'm not putting this on owners at all because actually we were all in the same boat. You you can't socialise your dog with strangers coming into the house. If strangers are, the government says strangers are not allowed in your house. So that was never going to happen. But I think, you know, moving forward, actually trying to explain to owners that their dog on a psychological platform has been damaged and absorbing that information has been really challenging. We knew it would be bad, but I didn't know how bad. So people that are maybe out there struggling right now, you know, engaging with somebody that really understands that and is going to come at that from a very knowledgeable, open-minded perspective. This is not a training problem. This is a psychological problem that needs to be dealt with because there's lots of people just reaching out for, you know, ending up with a clicker in their hands and an hour's advice once a week. And these dogs are just not going to manage to deal with that at all so 
I just want to kind of move on a little bit because I really want to kind of explore what's going on at the minute with regards to drug therapy. As you know, we've had discussions about this before and, you know, I've spent the best part of my career after transitioning from vet practice into behaviour not really needing or enjoying any drug therapy. It was not something I particularly wanted when I was dealing with cases and it's only really been the last two years it seems to have become really popular with vets um in fact i've had a client tell me today that somebody a vet actually prescribed ace promazine for a separation anxiety case so i'm really worried yeah and uh, for those that don't know ace promazine is something we used to use for a pre-medication before an operation to physically disable the animal pretty much um mentally the animal knows exactly what's going on so it's obviously not going to help with any anxiety if not it will make it worse so i'm kind of really worried about what's going on with this fine if practitioners are aware of when and how to use and what drugs to use but some of the things I'm seeing now or hearing about are actually beginning to concern me and I don't pretend to be an expert on drug therapy at all but I want to ensure that everybody out there that is having these drugs prescribed whether it be Prozac um, as people would recognize it whether it be sedative drugs or even nutraceuticals and uh, things like products like Zilkeen that people kind of understand that the purpose of these things so are you happy just to chat a little bit about it I know I know you're going to say I'm not a vet Joe, <laughs> but I also know you're very yeah. experienced with this stuff so and obviously because of the dogs you're dealing with you will absolutely be working with neuromodulatory drugs probably on a fairly common basis I would guess yeah I mean there's there's certainly a significant proportion of my caseload who are prescribed medication um unfortunately like you said I guess my the thing I have to be clear about is I'm not a vet and as a non-vet we're not able to recommend particular particular medications or particular dosages our role in it as behaviorists is looking at the welfare the overall welfare of the dog and what the prognosis is for me there are three factors the dog factors the owner factors and then factors relating to the environment so Mm -hmm. I think those are the three key things to think about when we're looking at whether medication is indicated or not if the behaviorist feels as though medication may be indicated then we'll have a conversation with the vet and that's why it's so important to to work as a team Mm -hmm. with the vet around the dog and and the vet is then responsible for which medication they choose to prescribe and the dosage and all that sort of stuff so so I'm cautious about talking about it on the one hand because I'm not a vet and it's definitely down to the prescribing vet but I think there's also there's a certain stigma attached to behavioral medications which I think we probably need to work on as an industry and just as we do with humans actually there's a there's a huge stigma in human psychology around taking medications and the shame that people feel if they do need medication to feel better Mm -hmm. and actually research is really important there are certain medications that are very well researched and are safe and effective and withholding those yeah is I think a, a common thing is well let's wait and see let's see if they get better in six months time and if Mm -hmm. they don't then let's think about medication then but actually that dog is then going to suffer for six months without appropriate support so I think it's very important to recognize quickly if medication is indicated but then having said that it's obviously down to the owner and all we can do is provide information so that owners can make an informed decision about it yeah and I think that you know the the research that I've done off the back of our conversations and stuff certainly with fluoroxetine which is obviously Prozac early intervention with that is the difference between it working amazingly well and and not I think for me you know you have to respect the fact that you know that they there are some excellent clinical trials that have been done that that these drugs are important and can make a huge difference I think from my perspective as a behaviorist 
I absolutely agree that it's not my place to to decide whether they're withheld or not withheld. I just like to be able to assess the dog as the dog is first, if I'm going to be asked to work with it and obviously have an expectation that, you know, certain things are put in place in, in the average dog. And I'm not specifically talking about dogs that have gone through trauma necessarily, but lots of dogs can appear quite distressed just because their communication is not being read. They've, they've not got any understanding of what the expectations are. And you can correct those things really quickly and get almost within seven to 10 days, a completely different dog. So, yeah. you know, the average pet dog that I'm going in to see, if that dog that's acting in a really hyperactive way, maybe it's being aggressive you know, I've got enough experience to know that I can probably change that in 80% of those dogs. So I kind of like to try and give myself that five to seven day period to figure out, well, you know, it's a tool to understand what's going on here. And certainly, I love the fact that you're going into vet practice as well, Rachel, because, you know, I've obviously got a veterinary nursing qualification, but I think we spent about three minutes on canine behaviour. Um, and yeah. I think most vets would agree they don't get taught about canine behavior. You kind of get taught this is how you handle a dog so you don't get bitten. You know, there's these gauntlets yeah. and there's these muzzles and you haven't got all the time in the world, which is one of the main reasons that I transitioned from vet practice out to work on my own in canine behavior because you get increasingly frustrated that these poor animals are coming in and people haven't got the time to integrate them properly when you're trying to fix them and make them better. Yeah, I mean, look, I, res- I totally respect the fact it's out there. I think coming together as a team now is really important. And I know that you're speaking at the trauma conference, which I'm attending remotely and okay. hoping to get loads of knowledge on that stuff. And, you know, I too chat to vets and, and I'm very lucky that I've got some amazing vets that I work with. Um, so anybody listening, you need to be considering a team of people to help your animal, not just, oh, I, I've got a training problem. You know, my dog barks when I leave the house. That's just the tip of the iceberg, really. Actually, unpicking what's going on is, is much bigger than that. And it's really important for all the different professionals involved in the case to value each other and communicate as well. I think that's something we got a lot better at in the human support field after there was a dreadful case, Victoria Columbia, that led to really a complete revolution of how agencies work together and communicate in human social care. Right. And I think the same is true for animals. So we need to be working as a team around yeah. the dog and we all have different things to contribute but then the owner needs to be clear about who they can go to for which bits and and we need to make sure that it does come together as a whole yeah and you know we had this didn't we we that's how we met was a, a client brought us together and we worked remotely on a a case of two street dogs that were brought over from Spain and at the point at which I was like you know okay I I think now we need to go down one arm I took a back seat and let you take over because they'd been working with you from the beginning and I think it was lovely to have that relationship in in such a negative industry do that because the dogs have done amazingly well and so have the owners having and I've, I've bumped into them a couple of times actually at vet practice we were and working with two labs weren't we that had come over from Spain and um, a couple of guys uh, and they obviously have been struggling with this complete change to their lifestyle and it was just I think from my perspective it was just really nice to be able to work with another a fellow practitioner that I'd never met in such an amazing way you know for the end result being the welfare of those dogs and certainly even doing these podcasts and being able to bring you know such amazing people together I've got a huge team of people that are amazing specialists in in different areas that bring you know knowledge to me on a regular basis and and the podcasts are going to be evident of that because I've got such great people to chat to including yourself so Rachel I just really want to I'm obviously conscious that I don't want to keep you for hours because we could chat for (laughs) many hours going forwards just really quickly, just for people that are listening to this and they're a little bit concerned, they've listened to some of the signs and symptoms and stuff, and they're a little bit concerned over what their dog is doing, whether, you know, we've talked quite a lot of the science behind this and what's going on with, with the dog. But if they engage somebody to come and work with them, what should that look like? What's a realistic perception on a, a treatment program? And I know, I, want, I know you're going to think quite deep for your worst case scenario cases because that's what you're dealing with. But let's just say we've got the average pet dog, normal, owned from a puppy, eight weeks old in this, this pandemic period that's maybe lacking in socialization, et cetera. 
if they engage in stuff with somebody, I, I know how I would work towards this, but I kind of want them to hear from you what a plan of action would look like. So the with any kind of trauma, I work on a kind of five very broad kind of set. So the thing about trauma is the dog's worldview. So where's a very resilient, well-adapted, confident puppy would have a worldview that the world is a safe place. There might be some dangerous things in it, but fundamentally the world is a safe place. Yeah. When it comes to trauma, that's flipped on its head. So the, the dog's worldview is very likely to be the world is a dangerous place. Mm-hmm. There might be some safe things in it, i.e. my little cubby hole under the bed or my owner's. Yeah. But fundamentally, the world's a dangerous place. Mm-hmm. So, so in those instances, I work on a kind of five stage model, if you like. So first of all, the first step is, does the dog feel safe somewhere? So mm-hmm. even if that's their crate or the spare room or under the bed, I've got one dog on my caseload whose safe space is in the bar. Oh, God. So, so wherever wherever they choose that to be, do they feel truly safe somewhere? If not, that's a gap that we have to plug before we can move on to treating the specific things that the dog finds difficult because we're not going to be able to change the dog's emotional perception of certain triggers, i.e. other dogs or people coming to the house, whatever it may be, if they don't feel safe anywhere. So yeah. that's the first step. The second step for me is about relationship building. So mm-hmm. um, does the dog feel safe with someone? And again, I tend to kind of do a bit of a mind map with people around what would a trusting relationship ideally look like? Are there any gaps in that? So, for example, Raya with her being distressed when I have heightened emotions yeah would be a gap so again I I would look at identifying gaps and then plugging them because if we're going to help support our dogs and help them to co-regulate in situations that they find difficult that relationship has to be based on trust so that Mm -hmm. that would be step two then I would look at does the dog feel safe in the home environment so in the environment that they live in i.e. all the different rooms of the house, in the garden, the events that they have to cope with day to day, like people coming to the house, do they feel completely safe in those? Because again, if the dog doesn't feel safe when they're chilling out at home, it's going to be very difficult to teach them when they're outside, if they're, if they're overwhelmed with a fear of people, for example. It's no good going straight outside and trying to work specifically on that fear you need to make sure that the dog is able to feel relaxed and socially engaged and happy for the time the 90% of the time that they're at home step four would be out in the outside world again what are the gaps what are the barriers to the to the dog feeling safe in that environment is it traffic is it other dogs is it people And that's when I would work specifically on changing their emotional response to those things. So the final step would be that shift in worldview. So towards uh, towards the dog being more resilient and having a worldview of, okay, I feel safe, full stop. So so that's the kind of journey, if you like, that that most of my cases, that's the trajectory that they might take. The timeline... It's very difficult. Sorry to cop out, but it's very. Difficult. I know, no, I get it. On it. Just because you know, with a dog that has experienced significant trauma, it can be a real challenge to get them to even feel safe somewhere. Yeah. Um. So I've got dogs on my caseload at the moment who are six months in, who still are, um, not feeling safe anywhere. So yeah. that's obviously a real challenge. Whereas other dogs. As soon as we set up a safe zone, within a couple of days, they're visibly Much relaxing better. and and yeah, able to able to feel safe somewhere. So sorry yeah. to be vague about that. No, and I think it's so dependent on. The no, I get it. 
And actually, I think it's it's actually a really good diagnostic assessment because, like you know, as I referred to earlier, if you've got your pet dog that's a bit troubled with communication and expectation issues, you put some real clear guidance. You know, maybe you have to do a little bit of counter conditioning and teach a new behaviour, but you make life, you add lots of clarity and you make it fun and you look at enrichment stuff. Actually, the change is almost instantaneous. You know, within three days, you can have you know an owner saying this is just amazing, and then it's just about keeping your owner passionate, consistent, and doing the work. But actually, like you say, if this is a troubled dog, you know, internally as well as externally, that's never going to happen in three days. So, yeah. actually, from my perspective, it really gives me a good viewpoint on what am I dealing with here quite quickly because if those dogs are not responding then clearly we have a lot more going on and and, you know it's not always easy to unpick even with a really good history you've only got owner's perception or owner knowledge to work from in most cases until Mm. especially when we were working remotely so I actually think that's really useful that it is and you mentioned a journey and it is a journey and you know that's pretty much what you've taken us on today which has been amazing I think (laughs) rounding it up with you look at a case and then we go on a journey together as a team and whoever's in that team is there for the you know the positive outcome of whatever result that is with the animal is is just great because I think it really differentiates between popping and having a great time don't get me wrong at a local training class and actually understanding that if you're getting severe behavior problems then you need to go on this journey to figure out what's the best plan of action for your dog so Rachel it's been absolutely amazing I know that you and I could talk for hours and hours and hours and I tried really hard to to keep zipped up so I hope I achieved that and everybody can can listen and it was a little bit deeper than than we've gone and which is what I wanted to get today if people want to reach out to you um and i say i know you're doing the, the conference so good luck with that um but how Thank do people you. find you rachel yeah so i run a facebook group called dogs impacted by trauma so if anybody is concerned about their dog or has a dog that they think is impacted by trauma or just needs emotional support there's there's all sorts of kind of free resources and information on there but the most important thing is it's a lovely community of people who are all in the same boat and it's a very safe and supportive environment where we really aim to celebrate those little changes that mean a huge amount to us and our friends and family might be going oh so your dog's made eye contact with you <laughs> yeah that's amazing amazing well done and yeah. to us that's like an incredible milestone yeah, to, to their friends and family it's like well, whatever <laughs> yeah. so yeah so so um that's probably the easiest way to reach me is through the dogs impacted by trauma facebook group um and then yeah i'm super happy to help anyone that gets in touch Perfect. And when does your book come out? Have you got a date yet? No. Oh, no. I know what that's like. Sometime, sometime towards the end of the year is okay. the best guess at the moment. Have you got a title? Uh, it's looking, it's a working title, Psychological Trauma and Dogs. Okay. And obviously be by Rachel Leather. So keep your eyes peeled for that because that will be amazing. Mm-hmm. Rachel, thank you so much. It's been absolutely awesome. I hope everybody has managed to take something out of that today. I'm sure they have. I definitely do. Every time we speak, I always uh, take something away from, from our conversations and think about, you know, using it in practice and applying what I've learned. So um, I love oh, that we can all learn from each other. And I think it's been amazing. It's been great to meet you and the journey that we've been on together as well brought us to this awesome podcast so thank you so much for having me it's been really lovely to chat to you